attorney Vincent Davis, and this radio show is called Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. A secondary purpose of this show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of this show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning to all. It is Saturday morning. Uh, today is November 22nd, 2016, and I'm broadcasting live from Orange County, California. Today, we're going to be taking calls, and we're also going to be talking about a subject um, that more and more people are becoming interested in, and it's the subject on how to sue CPS or how to sue DCFS, uh, the agency in your particular state or county um, that uh, takes your children away. Um, many times they do it um, under uh, questionable circumstances. Now, I'm not here to tell you that child abuse never happens because that's simply not true. But in many, many, many cases, child abuse is either fabricated or exaggerated by the social worker. I want to tell you of a couple of cases that I was personally involved with. In. One was a previous case. Uh, one's a case that I'm involved in currently. The prior case went something like this. The social worker detained my client's child based upon the fact that my client's, the child's therapist, informed the social worker that my client, the mother, was emotionally abusing the child. And I won't get into the details, but suffice it to say, uh, emotional of abuse of a child uh, can get you in hot water with the juvenile court and with social workers. But there was a backstory to this, and the backstory was a custody battle uh, that was being fought between the father and the mother. And as it turned out, the father was somewhat tangentially involved in the juvenile court system. He worked for a vendor who provided reunification services to parents who had lost their children. Well, one of the big pieces of evidence that was used to take the child away from the mother was a statement by the child's therapist. And the child's therapist was quoted in the DCFS reports as having said that the child was being emotionally abused by the mother. Now, that's a simple statement and, um, you know, seems to be, you know, plain and clear. About two or three weeks into the case, um, I interviewed the therapist and I also brought the therapist in as a witness. The bottom line was, the therapist said, first of all, I never talked to the social worker. Hmm, 
but I wonder how that quote got into the social worker's report. The more, um, I guess, telling evidence uh, by the therapist on the witness stand was, first of all, I never talked to the social worker who quoted this, and I've never told this to any social worker. And the other piece of information was the mom's not emotionally abusing the child. I've been the child's therapist for the past, you know, 10 to 12 months, and, and, I, and I don't see that at all. Um, that's what we, we, we would call, unless the therapist was lying, that's what we would call a social worker putting in false information to strengthen a case to take the mother's child away. In that particular case, that is a violation of the mother and the child's civil rights. It's also a violation of state and federal law. The second example I want to talk about is a case I'm currently involved in. A child um, is detained from parents due to a a broken a broken arm, and the social worker uh, wrote in the initial report, quoting a, a medical professional, uh, saying that the the injury could have only been. Ch- um, you know, caused by a certain pulling and twisting of the arm and that it had to be intentional. This is a case that recently started. And of course, at the hearing, um, the initial hearing, the judge seeing that evidence decided that, you know, the child should be detained from the parents until the judge could figure out what's happening. But in the report, the social worker quotes the medical professional. You know, this is uh, an injury that could have only happened by pulling and twisting the arm in, in an intentional fashion. Well, time has gone by, and we've actually gotten an opportunity to talk to that medical professional. Medical professional says, number one, I never told that to the social worker. What I told the social worker was, we see these injuries all the time on the playground because some of the backstory is that that this injury happened on the playground. And had I thought it was child abuse, I would have called the child abuse hotline and reported it because being a medical professional, I'm a mandated reporter in California. Now, assuming that this medical professional is telling the truth and the social worker is not telling the truth and in fact has created a false report and submitted it to the judge, um, that would be a violation of the parent's civil rights, a violation of California law, and it would be also a violation of the child's rights. So in California, there are two things that you can do to sue a social worker. Um, They're not mutually exclusive. You can do them at the same time, um, but you can only recover usually on one of the claims. So you might want to bring state 
claims, state law-based claims against the social worker. And in order to do that, you must file what's called a governmental tort claim against the county and against the social workers within a timely period. Usually that period, I believe, is six months of the incident. The rationale of the filing of the claim is to put the governmental entity and the governmental employees on notice that they are going to be sued so that they can gather evidence and keep evidence uh, you know, for their defense. It's also an opportunity to give the governmental entity uh, the opportunity to try to settle the case with you without going to trial. So, for example, if you file a, a governmental state tort claim against a social worker in the county and you ask for, you know, a million dollars, that gives this, the county the opportunity to uh, pay you that million dollars without having to go to court. Now, in almost 30 years of practicing law in California, I've never seen a governmental entity for any reason accept responsibility and pay a claim. I have heard of it happening on one or two occasions, but you know how lawyers talk and lawyers share stories. Um, you know, I don't know the background or the accuracy of that story, but I have heard that it happened once or twice. But for the vast majority of the thousands of claims that I've heard about or been involved with, the governmental authority usually never accepts responsibility and pays the amount of money that you are asking. Once the claim is, or if it is denied, then you have a period of time uh, to file the lawsuit. And I forget the exact, it's either six months or to a year, but I believe it's six months that you have to file your lawsuit under state law against the um, governmental actor, in this case, the social workers and the county. Now, you would generally file those claims within the California court system, the uh, California Superior Court, and you would file it within the county which in you reside or which where the um, you know the wrongdoing took place. Now, you also have you're also covered by federal law, and under federal law, um, there is a statute, uh, the Civil Rights Statute. Uh, the general one is Section 42 U.S.C. Uh, 1983. So that's 42 United States Codes and uh, United States Codes 1983. You can just type type that into Google and it will explain to you what that is. So you can you can pursue a social worker and the county on uh, federal civil rights claims. Now, in order to do that in California, you do not have to file claim that we were just talking about. And by the way, that state tort claim is filed in the county where, where you, which you are suing, and it's not filed at the courthouse. It's usually filed at the county clerk's office. And for Los Angeles, I believe that's on in the Hall of Administration. You can also get all of that information from Google. And sometimes the, the form itself will tell you where to file it or where to mail it so that you can file it. But getting back to your federal claims, with a, with respect to your federal claims, you can um, sue under 42 U.S.C. 1983 and some other statutes, and you can um, pursue your federal rights claims. Now, federal rights 
have something called concurrent jurisdiction, which means you can pursue that in state court or you can pursue it in federal court. Assuming that you filed state claims with your federal claims, um, there's a, I won't say a strong possibility, but there's a possibility that the social worker and their attorney and the county and their attorney may remove the case from state court to federal court. I've seen that happen many times where we wanted to pursue a case in state court, but we also filed some federal claims and the case gets transferred at the defendant's, at the social worker's request or at the county's request to the federal court. And then you're in federal court. Lately these days, and it's also a, a topic of discussion among attorneys who sue uh, social workers, um, we have, my office has been uh, filing a lot of cases just directly into federal court. And, you know, there's pros and cons on being in state court and being in federal court. In <clears throat> state court, uh, the California rules of evidence apply, the California Code of Evidence applies. In federal uh, court, the federal rules of evidence, they are slightly different sometimes with important um, distinctions. They're not the same. Also, in state court, the California uh, Code of Civil Procedure applies. And in the federal court, the federal rules of civil procedure apply. Slightly different. I won't say slightly different. They're different. So you have to be familiar with both of the rules, uh, both the rules of evidence and the rules of procedure when going into state or federal court. One of the most important um, things that happens in a civil rights case in state versus federal court is the jury. Um, the jury pools, in my opinion, from which juries are selected are significantly different. And uh, the jury in a state court, you only need to convince nine of the 12 that you should win and get money. And uh, in a federal court, you have to uh, convince all 12 jurors here in California that you should win. So that can be a significant difference. Um, in a lot of cases, uh, I don't personally believe that's a significant difference, but that's always a topic of discussion among attorneys. You know, it's harder to convince all 12, and in state court, you only have to convince nine of the 12. In my opinion, federal court and federal judges are much more powerful uh, with respect to um, what they say and what they do uh, than state court uh, cases or state judges. And in, uh, I, we recently finished a case uh, against uh, DCFS here in Los Angeles County and against uh, four or five social workers. And um, it was a federal court case. And the reason why it was federal court case was we didn't have the opportunity to file it in state court because um, the woman came to us shortly before the two-year statute of limitations was about to run out. Had she decided to pursue her state causes of action, she would have had to file um, the governmental tort claim six months after the incident. And she never filed that. The time was way past. And um, so she didn't do that thing, that first thing she had to do before filing a case uh, in state court or pursuing her state claims. 
But in our situation, it was okay because she had two years until filing a federal claim. And we filed the federal claim, you know, probably, you know, uh, a week before her statute of limitations deadline was about to run out. And, um, and uh, so we were okay. An interesting thing happened in that case that I just want to mention as a side note. Um, I think we filed the case, maybe it wasn't even a week, maybe it was a few days before the deadline, but we filed the, we filed the case on, say if the deadline was November 22nd, we filed the case on maybe November 19th. And because of the backlog at the federal court or the slowness in processing, even though it was filed and received by the clerk of the court, the um, it wasn't actually stamp filed until after the deadline. So it wasn't stamped. In, in this example, it would have been stamped like November 25th. And um, at the initial motion stage and later at the summary judgment stage, the county was trying to argue with a straight face that we had missed the deadline for filing. That filing meant filing, and that this, the um, clerk of the court, even though it received the document <clears throat> before the filing deadline, <clears throat> didn't process it until after the deadline. And, you know, I thought, this is my personal opinion, that that was one of the most ridiculous arguments I've ever seen. When they filed that motion, motion uh, to dismiss the case right at the front, I got the impression, well, the judge ruled against them, but the judge, I got the impression that um, the judge couldn't believe that they were, um, you know, making that argument. And then they, you know, yet again, they tried to make that same argument on summary judgment, you know, almost a year later. And uh, that was one of their strongest arguments, which, by the way, wasn't strong with respect to what I was concerned. But, um, yeah, they still tried to make that argument. So know that when you get involved in these cases, the attorneys that uh, represent the counties and the social workers, they're very good attorneys. Let, you know, do not think that they are, they don't know what they're doing, and that they're not strong attorneys. They're very good attorneys, and they're going to argue every possible defense, every possible point of law in order to kick you out so you don't get in front of a jury. So be mindful of that when you decide or if you decide to sue a social worker uh, and the county for violating your civil rights. Uh, I'm going to take a break right now and take a call from a caller. Uh, phone number is area code 562, ending in 48. Good morning. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vincent Daly. Did you have a question or a yes, story to tell us? Well, I got a story, and maybe I'd like your opinion at the end of the story. I'm not going to try and drag it out too long or anything. And I want to thank you for having your show, and thank you for helping me out in the past. And also thank all the listeners that are listening this morning. Anyway, to begin with, uh, I'm going to, everyone knows somebody that is involved with substance abuse or something of this nature or has been. I'm not a substance abuser. Um, my daughter's mom is a substance abuser. She, uh, my daughter was born with substance in her system, and that's why they claim that they took my daughter from me. 
this is two years later, okay? During the time of going to courts, the mother had been in and out of jail for burglaries due to her substance abuse. Um, she was supposed to be in prison till 2019 because her and her buddies went and robbed some old folks and beat them up, and they caught her with the bullets. They didn't catch her with the gun. So she got locked up. Uh, of course, doing the battle with DCSF, uh, they did not want to terminate her rights, and they did not terminate her rights. So what's happening now is um, they made me do visitation with the grandmother on her side. And it was very, very, um, they're dysfunctional. My daughter would come back saying the little kids over there beat her up. She'd come back, banged up, scratched up. I don't know if that's just the way they are or if they were trying to set me up. They did call DCSF and make an anonymous false report that I was abusing my daughter. And they came out, checked it out. Everything was good. They threw that out. But uh, what my deal is now, um, because they did not terminate her rights, she will be getting out of prison early because she's doing the fire camp deal. And um, she gets out November 23rd, and I'm locked into these visits once a week for three hours with her. And uh, my daughter has a very stable home. Everything is structured here. You know, we have everything that's, you know, what what's supposed to create a stable and safe environment for a child. And so I know that um, I'm going to monitor the visits. But I know that there, she's going to be pushing to take my daughter and take off with her. And it says right in the report from the courts that, you know, they have to be monitored as far as mom goes. The grandmother can't see her at all. And she's, she caused, she's the one that caused all the problems. But um, I have to deal with that. And the only thing I can do, because I know the courts, you know, they want to keep her rights going for because she's the mom. And it's not a safe environment for my daughter to be in. Uh, I, I don't like to assume stuff, but I know she's going to get back out and start using the drugs again. And I, I'm, you know, worried about my daughter's safety. Basically, I can't do nothing until she gets out and causes problems for herself. So it's kind of scary. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do to deal with all that. Again, I can't assume or catastrophize that this is what's going to happen. I'm just looking at a pattern of what's been going on since, you know, my daughter was born. She endangered my daughter's life. I would never never let her just take off with my daughter, and I'm sure that's going to be an issue because she's going to have her family grinding on her. You have your rights, blah, blah, blah. But I did get the paperwork back from the court saying that my daughter's, uh, you know, I'm caregiver to her. She's basically in my custody. She lives here, and I take care of her. But the mom will get one visit a week for three hours monitored. Now, her grandmother was the assigned monitor, but I'm going to set it up that I will be the monitor. And my daughter, she just she's emotionally distraught when she's away from me. And um, I don't want her to have to go through that like she did before, but I will set it up where we meet at a park or a restaurant, some public place, and I'm not going to let her take off with my daughter to go to the bathroom or anything else because we're fear that she may take off with my daughter. 
So I just wanted to share that with you guys. And, um, you know, I asked them to terminate her rights from the beginning. They were going to, and then they weren't because she is black and this is her first child. And, you know, it's, it's the thing that I'm thinking about is the safety and the well-being of my child. I'm not thinking, and of course, again, she does need her mom. I'm not trying to keep her from knowing who her mom is. I, you know, she knows who her mom is. I've taken her for her mom to visit with her a couple of times so that she knows her mom, but it's a very unstable situation. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what to do or how to deal with it. Um, from what I've been told, pretty much, I got to just let things happen, you know, until she messes up again. And that's kind of scary because, like I said, I don't want my daughter's life in danger around bad people. So um, what is your opinion on that? Well, you have, you're stuck in a very difficult situation. <clears throat> now, do you you said you thought that the that the mother might try to run off with the child? Yeah, I'm worried about that. They have family in Texas, and just the two grandmothers and an uncle are here in California. They go to Texas and Fresno all the time, so I'm kind of concerned about that. Of course, the mom will be on parole when she gets out of out of prison, so I'm not really thinking like she's going to take off with her which she might, but I'm thinking more of the relatives might try and get her and take off. Um, is your case still involved with the juvenile court or just the family court? Everything's closed. No, everything's shut down. And, uh, you know, like I said, I got paperwork that she's with me, but they still kept the mom her rights and for her to be able to have one week monitored visits for three hours when she gets out of prison. So, and when is she getting out of prison? November 23rd. Mm, so that's just right around the corner. Yeah, and this is a person that I didn't know this at the time, but she's been on meth for 10 years. That's not something new to her. And God bless her. I hope that she gets out and she's supposed to go in some rehab clinic. There's a four day window before she goes in this rehab place and get herself straightened out, get her life straightened out. You know, I'm not condoning that at all. I'm just uh, looking at the pattern and there's not much I can do, but sit and wait for her to mess up. Basically, I'm not going to just hand my child over to her or let her take off with my child. You know, but uh, on the other hand, I'm going to have to lay down some rules. I don't want her just coming over, banging on my door to see my daughter or for visitation. I'm going to tell her, you got to call me. We'll meet. This this house is my daughter's safety zone. She loves this house. So, and I'm not going to give her rides. She's going to have to find her own way to wherever we end up meeting. Do you think that's fair or am I doing too much? Well, I mean, it depends on the circumstances, but here's the thing. Um, and, uh, you know, in certain situations, you could petition the family law court to uh, further okay. restrict or terminate terminate the mother's visits and or her rights. You mentioned that she yeah. was in a uh, in prison. In prison. I, you know, yeah. one of the things, there, 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 are, there are several things in the family code in California that allows you to terminate rights. 
And by the way, before you do that, it's a very serious thing because that means that your your, your child would not grow up without a mother. A very serious thing. So um, one of them is you can terminate the rights of a parent where the parent hasn't visited within a year or, the, or, or not together, but or, where the parent hasn't paid child support within a year or when the the parent has a serious <clears throat> felony conviction, their rights yeah. can be terminated or limited. And, you know, okay. if you really think, if you really think that uh, the mom poses some type of threat to the child, you know, for kidnapping, <clears throat> that's something that you might want to consider. Now, I don't know the mom. I don't know what she would do or wouldn't do, you know. Yeah. And if she has rehabilitated herself um, in this, uh, you know, since she's been in, she's in state prison, right? Is that correct? Yeah, she's been written up a couple times, but. Nothing. They didn't add more time to that. Yes, she's in state prison, but also might I add real quick, I don't mean to interrupt you. She smoked drugs every day through the whole pregnancy. I tried to take her to rehab. I tried four different times, and finally I just took her back to her mom's house. I couldn't deal with it. And DCSF looked at me like, hey, you're doing child endangerment. Yes, she's doing child endangerment. You didn't do nothing to stop it. And I said, I don't know what to do with this. I was told her by the police because I did talk to them. There's nothing you can do until the child is born. So it's, yeah, there's a threat there. And again, I'm looking out for the best interest and the safety of my daughter. And, um, you know, I'm just not sure how to go about doing this, but the information you've given me does help. Um, I guess, you know, I just have to make sure that uh, the visitation is limited it says right on the paperwork it's limited to once a week for three hours and you know that she's not going to be taken off and i don't want the other relatives coming over trying to get my daughter to take her over to the mom to visit or any of that kind of stuff and again like i said i'm not going to go pick the mom up and have her in the car while we go to a restaurant or a park or anything like that she's going to have to get over there on her own so um do you have any more to add to that I don't. Uh, I wish you luck. It's going to be a very difficult time for you and the child, and and probably for the child's mother. <clears throat> have you have you thought about um, perhaps any counseling uh, to, as a uh, prophylactic measure uh, to implement before the mom gets out? Well, I might have to do something like that. Also, my daughter suffers emotionally because of the you know. I was told by the doctors when she's four or five, she's coming up on three, but when she's close to four or five, she might have emotional problems because of the drugs in her system. So um, at this time, you know, she does have some emotional problems and I am going to seek some counseling for her. And I'll probably try and talk to somebody about what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to keep the mom completely away, but I mean, that would be the best safety factor for my daughter. And um, I'm just, I just can't believe they didn't terminate her rights because she endangered my child. And then that was once. And then during the, the couple of years uh, period of uh, going to court, she got arrested for burglaries and doing meth four times. 
and they offer the rehab, they offer Section 8, they offer, you know, income, everything. And she went into a rehab, a six-month rehab, and after 12 days, she got bored and jumped out of that and got into trouble again and caught up to her. And she went back, and they offered a rehab for one year and all kinds of benefits, and I was thinking, why? And so after that, you know, Mm -hmm. She got 30 days in that one, and then she jumped out and got in trouble, and then she went to prison. So, anyway, I want to wish you wow. a good day, and, you and I a... thank you for any, you know, just let me know if there's any anything you think of, or and I'll keep you posted on everything, Mr. Davis. I appreciate your help. Thank you very much, and thank you for calling this morning. Have a good day. Okay, we're going to take another call. Hello, hi. Good morning, you're on with I Attorney. Would... Hi, Attorney, Go Mr. Ahead. Davis. We have been actually looking online, like looking at um, blogs and everything regarding our story. Our story is a lot different than a lot of other people's. Well, what happened to our child, we picked him, well, his father picked him up from school. First day of school, I already had apprehensions about this particular school anyways, because our child is nonverbal. So I backtracked, and I said, you know what, maybe I dropped him off, I came home, and I said, maybe this isn't the best school for our child. I went back to the school. They convinced me, give him another day, let him try it out, give him one day. So then, for some reason, that particular night, I didn't go to sleep until about 3.30. I was actually online looking at other schools. So I went back, I called the school, the very next day, I spoke to the assistant principal, and I said, are, are there any other options for my child? I'm, like, seriously worried because he's only four years old. His birthday, you know, is after the deadline. The entire class was full of second graders, and I said, I, I'm, I'm worried about the, you know, curricular that he's going to learn. I'm also worried about the other children might be larger than him, and he could potentially be bullied. Oh, no, he's going to be fine. Just leave him here. His father also that same day went and spoke to the teachers and explained our concerns. Oh, don't worry. He's going to be absolutely fine. So to make a long story short, not even two weeks into the school year, his father goes, and we're used to our son getting out of school around 1230. So his dad would frequently, because we have, we're, like, really close to the school, we go, like, to the post office, do a lot of business around the area. So his father said, hey, let me go check on my son. Maybe I'll pick him up early today. He goes down to the school. Our child is on top of an apparatus, unsupervised. The teacher is way across somewhere, and he was there. And usually our son gives his dad, like, a big hug. He runs to the car, hops inside of his car seat. Dad straps him in, and they they just go. They go and get food, or they go to Toys R Us, whatever it may be, or the grocery store. So that particular day, he needed help. So immediately, Dad calls me and says, hey, something's going on with our son's arm. And I said, really? I said, okay. He said, I'm going to give him a bath, and maybe he sprained it or was horse playing. So the next day, I called the school, and I said, hey, you know, what happened to my child? Was there anything that happened there? And I was told by... The, one of the assistants at this particular school, um, you need to te- check with the teachers. That's something you're going to have to ask them. And I said, okay, well, he won't be in school today. I need to take him to get medical help. 
So I've been having a battle between Obamacare and with Medi-Cal because they won't release my son. They keep saying he's active. Obamacare won't allow me to, to add my son. They even sent back the check from that particular insurance company. So here I am in limbo here just wanting my son released. So I have to take my son and I have to pay cash. Rather than taking him to the emergency room, I said, you know what, let me take my child to urgent care. Me not knowing anything regarding his injury would happen. Mind you, I take my child to um, a hospital that his pediatrician recommended. Turns out my son's arm was fractured. Okay? So we get him home, get him comfortable and everything. The very next day there was no school. So then we have Saturday, Sunday, Monday, which was Labor Day, there was no school. So immediately Tuesday, Dad does just like the the assistant told us, go ask the teachers. Hey, you know, what happened to our child? Principal goes, hey, well, I'll have to look into it. I'll have to do some investigating. I really don't know. I wasn't on campus that day. Okay, I call the school, ask the principal, are you sure? Really look into this because our child was injured. Nobody told us anything. No one sent our child to the school nurse. Nothing. Principal, we go back, never called us that day, go back to the school. Principal tells us our child was grabbed by some steps and he was pulled down by his legs by a second grader. Immediately we're like, okay, and who was the second grader? Who are the parents? Who are the teachers that seen it? Oh, well, I'm still looking into that. We'll, We'll let you all know. So we get home. Next thing you know, knock, knock, it's the police at our door. We tell the police what the principal had told us regarding the second grader grabbing our child by the legs, pulling him down by the steps or stairs. And I couldn't figure it out for the life of me. I said, well, what steps or stairs could he be talking about? Told the police the story. The police went to the school. Principal tells the police, actually, I didn't say steps or stairs. He was pulled down by an apparatus. There's no way I would have known about an apparatus. Principal told us one thing, told the police another. So the following two weeks after, I get a police report, and it states our child was pulled down an apparatus. I go look at the apparatus, and I said, well, there are some, like, things that seem like they're steps or stairs. Maybe that's what he was talking about. I get a knock on the door. Here it is, um, child services. I figured I had nothing to hide. I wasn't, you know, afraid. I'd never been through this. This is my first child. I've never even had a speeding ticket. So I open the door. I'm talking to her. Meanwhile, I have about three or four people running in and out working on my bathroom, which was a disaster. And so she, you know, proceeded to ask me questions and so forth, wanted to examine my child. Me, I'm not knowing. And prior, what I did was I actually had called an attorney, a family law attorney. That's where I went wrong. And he said, go ahead and let them in. If you have nothing to hide, go ahead and speak with them. I didn't know anything about having a juvenile dependency. Like I said, never even had a speeding ticket. So she comes back. Another time, she says, I want to speak to um, Dad, to his father. So we're like, okay, no problem. She takes my nonverbal four-year-old son in a room and asks him who did this to him. And she says, he pointed. Now, there was no pictures of myself, no pictures of his father in the room. So how would he point at us? He couldn't even see us from the room. So based on that, the social worker dragged my four-year-old. Not only that whole day was September 15th, it was tax time, so I was doing my corporate taxes, everything. I came home late, hadn't eaten all day. 
So she goes outside for about 45 minutes to an hour and says, well, I'll be right back. So we left. I went to go grab food. We were hungry. We get a call. Get back over here immediately. We get back home. There's about five police cars surrounding our building, lights on, police lined up inside of the hallway, and she's telling me that she's taking my child. My four-year-old was crying, screaming. He's already a special needs child as it is, and she took my son to a foster home. So not only did she take my son to a foster home, during the detention visit, the first time I seen my son, he had lacerations on his neck, lacerations on his ribs because his bandages were wrapped so tight around him. They, he literally had lacerations. So, of course, um, when we were doing our visit, we were explaining to the lady that was monitoring us when we seen it. Begging for Neosporin for Vaseline, the lady literally turned everything around and put, you're being belligerent if you cry or just, you know, even if you hug your child. So to make a long story short, my child was in a foster home all the way in Compton, California. Mind you, I live in Chevoid Hills. The social, the supervisor social worker told me that she had a verbal conversation with my child, that he was placed really late at night, and she was going to make sure that he was placed with a really good black um, family in a really good foster home. And I'm like, for one, my child should not be in a foster home, and for two, it would seem to me if a foster parent was black, white, Chinese, it doesn't matter the race or nationality, Foster parents are even being discriminated against these people. My child could have been placed with anybody that was closer, any foster home, regardless of their race or nationality. So um, he remained in foster care. It will be one thing after another. Well, you can come and visit him on a Wednesday. We get there. The, the monitor was two hours late bringing my son after I take this long drive. We get there another visit. My son's saturated in urine. So when I did complain about my son having a pull-up on all day where it was so saturated it went through his clothes. So the very next visit, the foster mother says, hey, your child is not allowed to have any of the fruits, vegetables, or any snacks that you want to send, not even his almond milk. And um, they can send a tiny bit, but not as much. We had only sent enough because in case she had other children there, there would be enough for them. And I just feel like this entire system, it's kind of backwards. Are you, you there, Mr. Davis? Yeah, it's backwards. Yes, I mean, they Why take do you say it? That they shouldn't take, and they leave the ones that should be taken. Um, tell me a little bit more about the uh, the injury. Um, why do they suspect that you or your husband uh, caused the injury? Well, um, the, she suspected because, according to her, she took my son in the room and asked, "She did this to his arm," and he pointed. Now, he knows how to say mom. He knows how to say dad. He didn't see neither one of that. He didn't see us. He didn't, he, not only did he not see us, there was no pictures of us. She claims that she had spoke to a nurse, and the nurse said that his arm had to be twisted, yanked, or pulled. And my question for you, Mr. Davis, if that nurse felt that my son's arm had to be twisted, yanked, or pulled, and it didn't happen at school, she wouldn't wouldn't it be her job to go ahead and call and um, child services herself? Because that same nurse told us, oh, this is a common playground injury. This happens all the time, especially when they're this age. Yes, but let me go back for a minute to your 
she takes your son into a room. Does she close the door? Yes, she took him into the bedroom and closed the door. Her okay, and so another caseworker. Okay, so in that room, they're talking to your son. How old is your son? He's four years old. He can't hold a conversation. Non- Nonverbal. He you will say he- things like yes, like certain certain things, but no, he can't even hold a conversation with you. He can't even okay, pronounce so his name. Were there any? Okay, were there any? pictures of you or your husband in that room? Absolutely not. Just a picture of my deceased grandfather. Okay, so when the social worker says he pointed, what was he pointing at? That's what we would like to know. She utilized him pointing, trying to say he was pointing to one of us. And then she decided to say he was pointing to his dad. Because apparently, just off of he pointed, she came right out of the room and said he pointed. He pointed, and I said, well, who did he point at? Then she told his father, oh, he pointed to you. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, um, is your son still in this foster home? Actually, he was released to my mother the day before yesterday after being in foster home for over a month. Where was, um, I mean, did the social worker release the child, or or how did that happen? No, actually, um, the judge released the child. So the social worker didn't even want to turn the child over to one of your relatives. The judge had to make them do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Well, I'm sorry to hear your story that has affected your family and has affected your child. And um, I want to thank you for calling in. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Mr. Davis, for listening. You can keep us posted in the weeks to come on the show. Call us back and let us know what's happened. I certainly will. I will keep the show posted. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I hate to hear stories like that because, you know, can you just imagine what this is doing to the family, uh, to the father, to the mother, and then to the child, the child himself? Sometimes I think we cavalierly take children from parents thinking, you know, that it's no big deal, uh, you know, because the the system, the social workers, the judges, the attorneys, they do this every day. And, um, you know, I must confess, many, many, many years ago, I was a court-appointed attorney. And um, I can tell you, just speaking for myself, that sometimes you get immune. You get immune to what you're actually doing to these people. And, uh, you know, it might be, you know, business as usual for for you um, being involved in the system. But for most of these people, this is the first time something like this has ever happened to them. 
And I've mentioned this on, on the show um, before, and I just want to mention again. Over the years, um, I've developed a, a, a small practice in representing foster parents, foster parents who have been accused of abuse and neglect. And um, I think that uh, the juvenile system just believes that foster parents are the, you know, the saviors of the world. They're the, the safe haven for the um, the social workers. And, um, you know, it's not always true. I represented a foster parent who was accused of causing the death of a child. I've represented foster parents who have been accused of sexual abuse. I've represented foster parents who have been accused of physical abuse. So, you know, uh, foster foster homes are not the panacea that we think. And sometimes when we're removing children, um, I think there should be something in the law that we should, that should give pause to consider, you know, we may be placing this child from one situation um, possible abusive situation into another abusive situation. Um, maybe a year, year and a half ago, I was uh, in Monterey Park and I was sitting in the chambers of a judge with other attorneys on the case. And uh, the minor's attorney reported to the judge that the child was placed in a group home and that she was being emotionally and physically abused by the other group home um, residents uh, who were other, you know, teens themselves. And uh, that basically the child's attorney was uh, begging to get the child removed from that, even if they had to return the child to one of the parents, which is a whole other story. But um, the judge looked at us and basically said, and I don't want to misquote the judge, but she said something like this. I guess I should be checking out the places where I'm sending these children to. She said it much more eloquently than that, but it stunned me because um, I always wondered whether judges even consider that, even consider where they're sending these children to, because it's not the panacea that uh, they sometimes believe. Uh, I'm going to take another call, uh, area code 706, uh, excuse me, 760, ending in 64. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vincent Davis. Good morning. Um, my story is Good actually morning. kind Did of a lengthy one. Okay, go mm-hmm. ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Well, my story started back, okay, my story starts back in October of 2015, and it had nothing to do with my daughter. It had to do with my grandchild, who was 10 months old at the time. Um, I was babysitting her for my adult daughter, her and my other granddaughter. And um, I was in my room with them. The one grandbaby was asleep, and the other one was with me on the bed. I had to go to the restroom. I got up. Um, She was on the bed. I went in there and went to the bathroom. I came out, and she had grabbed my medication bottles. Um, so immediately I let my daughter know, I called her, I think it was 36 times and I texted her twice as many times to let her know. So when my daughter finally came to get her, she's like, oh, she's fine. She's fine. There's nothing wrong with her. She's fine. Long story short, I finally convinced them to take her to the ER. And when they did, it came back that 
she had amphetamines and opiates in her system. Well, it was the medication. And I told them that at the ER, ER what medications I was taking. Um, but what they did was instead of testing them like they should have for prescriptions instead of illegal drugs, they they didn't do that test. Um, so CPS came the next day and took my daughter. I have a nine-year-old because they wanted to blame it on my boyfriend because he had a prior drug abuse history. So did my adult daughter. I showed them, you know, like, long story short, the, the lady, the CPS worker that came out, she filed a petition that was 98% false information. She went as far as to say that all my prescriptions, the labels were taken off of them, and that I said that they were someone else's prescriptions and that I had them for my, un, my own drug abuse problem. Okay, I've never had a drug abuse problem. I've never done drugs. I was a drug and alcohol counselor. Um, I mean, it was just the lies she said were just unreal. So they took my daughter. They took her to Polinsky. I didn't sign a medical release form. So they had her examined without me saying that she could be. The next day, the social worker faxed it to me to sign. Um, it's been, each report, it's been one lie after another. They've changed the dates. They've changed the circumstances. They said, my daughter wasn't even home that day. She was at school. They started to say that she didn't take the bus, that she was driven to and from school. Um, by my boyfriend and that he was under the influence and he was driving her to and from school and putting her in danger. I... I had a note from the school saying she took the bus. Um, one of the moms at the little um, that rode the bus with my daughter wrote a letter. I had all kinds of letters from people stating the same thing, you know. And to this date, it's now it's my daughter was left home alone with the boyfriend, and I was gone. And then the incident with my granddaughter happened a couple weeks after that. I was home that day. Nobody else was home that day, and I was watching her. My daughter was at school. It happened in October of 2015. This is October of 2016. I've had the Indian Child Welfare Act. They have, um, it's, I'm going back for the eighth time for that in December, because each time the social worker hasn't filled out the paper right. She gets the names wrong, everything. My mom was adopted, and with her birth certificate came paperwork from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. They told me to leave my house and that I can have my daughter back. They, they didn't even do the, they didn't even take jurisdiction until February 1st. Like I said, the incident happened in October. They said, leave the house and I could have her back. I left the, my house and everything I had in it two days later. And they did the parenting plan. I completed everything. Go to the six-month review, and now it's because I'm staying with somebody. I can't have my daughter. They keep making excuses and excuses, and it's all based off that one report that was, they, 
They said that there was a court order stating that my boyfriend had to be in drug rehab to be in the house with my daughter. There is no such court order. Nothing of that has ever been said. It's it's just ridiculous the amount of lies that these people tell. What uh, county is your case in? San Diego. And, and I have a court-appointed court attorney. Are you, are you North at county. Meadowlark or North, North County? Vista? Correct. Okay. And when is your when was your last I have complied with everything. Next? My last court date was last week. It was last Wednesday, and that was for the that what is it the Equa, and once again they postponed it, and it's not until December December fourteenth, and that's when they're doing the twelve month review. Have, okay, my child is placed with my mother right December. now. Right. But it's already been a year along with your mother? gone. I do. You get along with your mother? Okay. Yes. Um, the twelve the twelve month hearing that's coming up is a very important hearing. Um, I don't know who your attorney is, but you should sit down with him or her and strategize on what you're going to do, because this is going to be the last hearing where you can attend to try to get your child back. Um, right. If you would like. It, if you would like, you know, we're running out of time right now. Um, but right. if you get the last, the last four or five minute orders, and the last two or three social worker reports, and you I have them email all. them to me, okay, mm-hmm. I'd be willing to review them, and then have a conference with you over the phone, and tell you my thoughts about the case. One of the okay. things that you initially said about about um, the social worker complying with ICWA. If they haven't complied with ICWA, they can't do a 12-month review hearing. They can't even do the disposition hearing. And it might be a basis for you to set your case back and to have it started all over again. So that's one of the things I want to be talking to you about is the ICWA, Uh, but we're running out of time. Pen and a piece of paper, I'll give you my email address and you can email me and you you know this information and we can uh, set up a time where we can talk on the phone. It's free consultation. I'm just trying to do this to help okay. you. You're one of the listeners. Let me know when you have a pen. Thank you. Okay, I'm ready. Actually, I did call your office in the very beginning um, and I spoke with one of the attorneys in great length. I just didn't, I wasn't able to come up with the money to um, you know, retain you. I have okay. a two-inch binder, and that is thick. It's full. I presented all the evidence to my oh, attorney on, to show that ma'am? everything was said. Yes. Ma'am? You're never. I'm sorry I'm to sorry. cut you yes. off, but we're running out of time. Let me give you the email okay. address. It's v, okay. v as in Vincent, V as in Vincent at VWDlaw.com. V at VWDlaw.com. And I'm going to have to sign off with you right now because we have about 30 seconds left in the show. Thank you for calling, though. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. I want to thank everybody again for listening this weekend. I want to tell you that we're going to talk, pick up the topic of suing CPS next week on our Saturday show at 8 a.m. So I'll see you next week on the radio.